Leviticus 17, 1-14. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites and say to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Any Israelite who sacrifices an ox, a lamb or a goat in the camp or outside of it, instead of bringing it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, that person should be, shall be considered guilty of bloodshed. They have shed blood and must be cut off from their people. This is so the Israelites will bring to the Lord the sacrifices they are now making in the open fields. They must bring them to the priest, that is, to the Lord, at the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as fellowship offerings. The priest is to splash the blood against the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. They must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat, to the goat idols to whom they prostitute themselves. This is to be a lasting ordinance for them and for the generations to come. Say to them, any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to the Lord must be cut off from the people of Israel. I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood and I will cut, off, cut them off from the people. For the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make an atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is, that, it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. Any Israelite or any foreigner residing among you who, who, who hunts any animal or bird that may be eaten because uh, must drain it out of the blood and cover it with the earth because the life of every creature is in its blood. That is why I have said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is in its blood. Anyone who eats it must be cut off. Uh, let me pray before Rowan uh, joins us to uh, shed some light on that passage. Heavenly Father, I thank you for a glorious day outside and that we can meet together and open uh, your word. I thank you for Rowan and that he can speak to us freely. I pray that we might clear our minds um, of the stresses of ye and we would really um, be listening uh, to what Rowan has to say. May you give uh, your words to Rowan and that may he speak them clearly and may we understand and interpret them um, the way that you wish us to. Um, so I thank you for that and I pray that we would have ears to hear today. Amen. Good to see you here at the EU public meeting. My name is Rowan Kemp. If I haven't met you before, uh, do come and introduce yourself over afternoon tea just outside. I notice we've got a packet of tin tams ready to go, so please come and join me in that. We can get a third of one each. Uh, I've called this particular reflection on the book of Leviticus, which we've been we're looking at this Old Testament book of Leviticus over these first four weeks. I've called this particular talk, Don't Drink the Blood which does sound like it comes from more like a vampire movie than an EU public meeting. Don't drink the blood, some sort of health warning. 
Uh, but, I, by the way, I don't understand our fascination with vampires. Uh, it's a long-standing fascination. It, it goes back away. Uh, I don't know if you know who this bloke is. Uh, this is uh, Bella Lugosi, uh, famous 1931. Any you know, uh, cinema f fans? You know who? So you'd well know the movie Dracula from 1931. Yeah, and Bella Lugosi, very. I've never heard of him before. Anyway, um, goes back to 1931, Dracula movies. Back in my day, which you know, a long time ago, uh, everybody was in love with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Everyone loved Buffy, and then it went through into the 2000s with uh, Bella and Edward, which, frankly, I'd prefer to gnaw my own arm off rather than watch <laughs> one of their movies. Still continues today. I don't know if uh, you watch this, but uh, The Vampire Diaries has just been renewed for its fifth season. I saw it sort of last month. For some reason, we are completely enthralled by vampires. Uh, don't drink the blood. That is not what this particular talk is about. Why are we talking about don't drink the blood? The reason is because of that passage that we just had read for us from Leviticus chapter 17. There's this uh, little excerpt there you can see there uh, up on the screen. The Lord says, An Israelite or an alien living amongst my people, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut them off from his people. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may an alien living among you eat blood. There's this prohibition in this ancient book of Leviticus against eating blood. It's not unique to this particular moment in Leviticus. It's there in Leviticus chapter 3. It's there in Leviticus chapter 7. It's there in Leviticus chapter 19. And it's here in Leviticus chapter 17. Don't drink, sorry, don't eat, literally it says, don't eat the blood. And you sort of go, hang on, uh, why would you eat blood? Is it a congealed cube of blood that I need to eat? Or Like, surely you drink blood, right? Why would it say eat well, that's clarified for you when you get to the reference in Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19.26 clears that up for us, where the Lord says clearly, do not eat any meat with the blood still in it. So the prohibition that's going on here is against eating meat which has the blood still in it. That's why in Leviticus 17, the passage we had read for us, if you're out hunting and you, you find an animal, kill it to feed your family, you're to not eat the eat the meat with the blood still in it, you have to drain all the blood out first. Okay, that was there in verses 13 and 14. The big question though is why? Why would the one true living God prohibit his people from eating meat with blood in it? What's the deal there? Why is it such a big deal? Well, um, I grew up in what I like to call meat and three veg Australia. That is, back in my day, Australians, the vast majority of Australians, had not discovered the genuine delights of souvlaki, of korma, of padsi yu. Pretty much what happened was vegetables were diligently boiled until their structural integrity was compromised. <laughs> and they would start to fall apart on your plate. And yes, they are well cooked now. Meat... Meat was cooked until it was perfect, a perfect uniform grey. 
when you sliced it. That was asking for a piece of meat to be well done. And it was, well done was well done. Like that's what people wanted from their meat. These days, of course, you go to a restaurant and you say, oh, can I have a well done steak? Or actually, even if you ask for a medium steak, if you ask for anything more than medium rare, you're going to get a raised eyebrows, tusk, tusk, shake of the head, and the waiter may well just refuse your order. Because these days, to ask for anything well done is actually to ask for a perfectly good piece of meat to be wasted on your behalf. That's the attitude that's taken. So these days, we love meat, if you're not a vegetarian, you love meat with the blood still in it at some level. So I'm trying to work out why would the one true living God say to his Old Testament people, the one thing, do not eat meat with the blood in it. What's going on there? What's the purpose? Well, Leviticus chapter 17 gives us the reason, which is why we've landed on this particular passage today. So if you've got your Bible there, it'd be really helpful to have it open. Maybe look on your phone or look with the person next to you. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 helps us. What we realise here is that an animal's blood had a very special purpose and was not to be used for anything else, including consumption. It was not to be consumed because it had a special purpose. So Leviticus 17 verse 11. The Lord says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood. So, creature's blood was to have only one purpose, to make atonement for sin at the Lord's altar. If you're presenting a sacrifice, then the blood from that animal was collected and then the priest would sprinkle it around the altar. If you were out hunting and you caught something to eat for your family, you were to drain the blood out and cover it with earth because the only thing that the blood was meant to be used for was making atonement at the altar. So you're not to use it for anything else. If you're out hunting, then you leave it under the earth. Don't use it for something else. Now what's so special about the blood here? You can see it there in the passage, if you've got it there, verse 11, verse 14. The blood represents the life of the creature. Fairly obvious. You've got no blood in you, you're not going to have any life in you, right? And so the use of an animal's blood was strictly limited to making atonement as a way of reinforcing to the Israelites the substitutionary nature of their salvation, of their atonement. The idea was that this animal's life was given instead of yours, represented by their blood, the fact that their blood was sprinkled around the altar. Their life was being given for yours. See, if you might be... Um, desperately hungry as an ancient Israelite and so you head out to collect, to collect some food for your family, you find a suitable animal, you, you kill it and you, you bring it back and that animal saves your family from hunger, say. You present another animal from your own flocks at the altar, its life is given and it saves you from God's just wrath against our sin. Which of those two salvations, salvation from hunger or salvation from sin, which do you think is the greater? Which is the greater salvation? Well, for the Israelites, it was very clear. The greater salvation was what happened at the altar. 
And the way they showed that was that whenever an animal died, they never used the blood for anything else other than making atonement at the altar. If they weren't going to use it for that, then they just left it where it was, on the ground. So even in their day-to-day life, even just in the finding of food, they are still respecting the fact that blood is given for making atonement at the altar, for that greater salvation. So all the time, in their just general run of life, they would have been reminded of the greater salvation that's occurring at the altar. All right, so that's sort of how this don't eat the blood, don't drink the blood function for the ancient Israelites. What about us today? What about today in Christ? What can we say about this? As I've tried to say over these uh, first couple of weeks of the year as we've looked at this little book of Leviticus, been saying how Leviticus itself as a law code, an ancient law code for the ancient Egyptians, Egyptians, ancient Israelites, it no longer applies to those who are now in Christ. It doesn't apply to Christians as a law code, as a whole code. It no longer applies to us. However, that law code is part of our Christian Bible and it functions as prophecy pointing forward to Jesus and as wisdom informing us when we read it through Jesus on how to live righteously now. Not by following the detail of every law, but informing us and shaping us as we try to think, what does it look like to live rightly now in God's world? So my question then is, okay, this particular prohibition against drinking the blood, how does that function for us today who are in Christ, if you call yourself a Christian? How does that work for us? Well, I just want you to think through logically for a moment. That Old Testament prohibition against drinking the blood, what was the point of it? The point of it was to respect the blood that makes atonement for you, right? That's why you didn't eat the blood. Respect the blood that the Lord's given to make atonement for you. But we know from the New Testament, where was atonement actually made? It was actually made when the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life for us in his death. What we will remember tomorrow, Good Friday. That's where the real atonement was made. So, given that the real atonement has now been made, it would make sense to say, well, we no longer need to respect animal blood by not eating it, you know, because actually we're not using animal blood for making atonement anymore because the real sacrifice has come, the real atonement has been made. So, you would think, as you put it together, you go, okay, yes, The law code repealed and that particular law, the point of it has now been superseded by the real atonement being made in Jesus. So, let's go out and unless you're a vegetarian, let's order medium rare steaks all round and we'll celebrate the freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ by eating meat with the blood in it, with a clear conscience because we understand that law in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes? Makes sense? Are you with me? Have you followed the logic? Yeah, try to step it out for you, right? You got it? Good. So we go out today, we order our medium rare steaks and then whilst we're waiting for the order to be fulfilled because, hey, they weren't expecting to have quite this many steaks ordered at one time today, (laughs) we say we've got to fill in the time so you do what you normally do, you read the Bible together while you're waiting for your food to come. I take it that's what you do when you're waiting, you're just filling in time, do something useful with your time. Anyway... And someone says, well, I've been reading the book of Acts. We say, well, that's good, so let's flick there. And we start reading Acts 15 and we get a bit of the way into it and then we suddenly go, yeah, maybe we should get that waiter back to change that order because we're stuffed, aren't we? So you better turn with me to Acts 15. 
hang on, what's, go, what's going on here? Acts chapter 15, verses 19 to 29. I thought it, we worked out, eating meat with blood and it was all good now, right? What the heck is this saying? So, a bit of context, if you're not so familiar with the book of Acts. The Lord Jesus has died and been raised again and, and ascended to his Father's right hand. Uh, and now the Christian church has been established. But Acts 15, there has been a massive tension within the early Christian community between Christians who've come from a Jewish background, so they're used to keeping the Old Testament law, but have now come to believe in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, which is right, between them and Christians from a Gentile background, a non-Jewish background, who had never kept the old Jewish law, but have now put their faith in Lord Jesus. Massive tension between these two groups of people on whether, as a Christian, you ought to obey the Old Testament law or not. Now, just store that fact away, that that was a massive tension in the early church, because that tension pokes its head up a lot throughout the whole New Testament, through the book of Acts and a lot of the letters that are there in your New Testament. It's really helpful just to know that that was a big issue. The particular thing we're reading here in Acts 15 is there's a massive powwow, that is, all the leaders of the early church have come together to resolve the tension. What should Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ, should we expect them to follow this Old Testament Jewish law or not? We're going to jump into verse 19, which is where James, one of the early church leaders, is speaking. And his wisdom, his advice, ends up carrying the day. Let's have a look at what it says there in Acts 15, verse 19. James says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God... Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders amongst the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorisation and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Now, what's the story here, right? Surely we were right in thinking that because the real atonement, the Lord Jesus Christ, is like, surely now we're free to eat meat with blood in it. How come they've identified abstaining from blood as one of the laws they thought the Gentiles did need to keep now. What's going on here? Well, the clue to the answer, I think, is when you look at some of the other things that they also prohibit. See, one of them, one of the practices listed there, 
is eating food polluted by idols. They're told to abstain from that as well. Now, this was also one of the big sticking points between the Christians from the Jewish background and the Christians from the Gentile background. And the advantage of this particular one, food polluted by idols, is that it is mentioned explicitly quite a number of times in the New Testament. So we have quite a, quite a bit of information with which to work on. Why was this thing prohibited by the New Testament Christians? So, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, which is one of the places the Apostle Paul discusses it, he says a couple of things. He says, food sacrificed to idols, food polluted to idols, he says, we know there is no problem eating that sort of food. There is no theological problem eating that sort of food. Why do we know that? We know it because, he says there, idols are nothing, he says. There is only one God, the Father, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, and we know that food doesn't bring us any closer to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat. We're no better off if we do. So there's no theological problem with eating any food that's been sacrificed to an idol. However, Paul goes on, there's no theological problem, but guess what? There is a very big pastoral problem in their context if you decide to eat food sacrificed to an idol. Precisely because some of the Christians in that context, from a Jewish background often, had a real conscience issue over whether you should eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. They might know theologically that, yes, there's in principle no problem, idols are just nothing, but, but they'd spent their whole life before coming to Christ keeping all the Jewish laws and it was just deeply entrenched in them that you didn't have anything to do with idol, pagan idol worship, and so you didn't touch the meat that came from the idol temple. So even though, yes, they hear the theory, the theology that says it's now okay to eat this stuff, they're going, yeah, but it doesn't sit right with me. I am just, I feel like it's doing the wrong thing. And so Paul is very clear. Paul says, I'm quoting here from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, he says, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin because then they're encouraged to eat this meat that's been sacrificed to idols against their conscience. If what I eat causes my brother or sister to sin, I will never eat meat again so I don't cause them to fall. You see what he's saying? Paul's saying there's no theological problem but there is a massive pastoral problem if I partake of this meat and if there's going to be a pastoral problem, I won't eat. The principle, the New Testament principle there is love limits liberty. We, we freely, happily sacrifice our freedom, our, our genuine liberty in Christ because we love those amongst our community who have a more tender or weaker conscience on the issue. Love limits our liberty. Now, if you've been uh, paying attention and you're thinking through it and following the logic so far, you go, okay, so what you're saying is Eating meat sacrificed to idols, eating meat with blood in it, no theological problem, but there is a big pastoral problem, so that's why Acts 15, they said, don't do those things because it, you know, it's causing a pastoral problem. What about sexual immorality? That was in that list too, right? Are you saying that sexual immorality, there's no theological problem, there's just a pastoral problem? And so I guess if there's no pastoral problem in our context, there's no problem. How, okay, so you've got to stop and think for a moment. What, why do they pick those four things? Why do they pick food sacrificed to idols, 
meat of strangled animals, meat with blood and sexual immorality. Why would they pick those four? Of all the things they could cho- chose, why did they pick that? It's because all four of those things were associated with pagan idol worship. When you went and got involved with, uh, at a pagan temple and were involved in worship, you may well join in some sort of pagan idol feast, eat, eat all sorts of meat, and also you might, as part of your worship, you might go and have sex with a temple prostitute. That actually was part, sometimes, of some pagan worship. You go and have sex with the temple prostitute. And you can see what they're saying. They're saying is, we want you to stay away from these four things that are all associated with pagan idol worship, but I want to suggest to you that the reason you abstain from each of those differs slightly. Some of them, we know that in Christ, there was no theological problem, you were to abstain from them because of the pastoral problem it was causing, like meat sacrificed to idols or meat with the blood in it. But the sexual immorality prohibition, I think, goes back all the way, it has a a greater background, if you like, it goes all the way back to creation itself. See, sexual immorality isn't, first of all, prohibited when you come to the book of Leviticus and the particular laws for holiness that God gave his old covenant people at Mount Sinai. Sexual immorality and and how that fits under God's thinking goes all the way back to creation itself. It's grounded in the very nature of human beings' creation. That sex outside of a marriage commitment between people of opposite sex For God God just says that is not what sex has been created for. It has only been created for this lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, what we call marriage. Hence, there is a theological problem with sexual immorality. So, all four things were prohibited but for slightly different reasons. And that's true whenever we read the book of Leviticus. Whenever you read the book of Leviticus, you've got to always read it against a creation background understanding its place within the covenant, the covenant established at Mount Sinai, the covenant that went back to Abraham and and ultimately led forward to Christ, and read it through the Lord Jesus Christ. Creation, covenant and Christ. You always read Leviticus, the particular laws of Leviticus, in that sort of framework. And any particular law will fit into that framework, though sometimes in different sort of ways. Okay? All right, so that is why I think when you get to Acts 15, that the Christians were told, do not eat meat with the blood in it because there was a pastoral problem going on in their context. My guess, when we go out together and we all decide to have lunch together, I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think there will be anyone here today who probably has a particular conscience issue over eating meat with blood in it. You may choose not to eat it because you don't like the taste. You may choose to be a vegetarian because of various other concerns but I don't think that us eating that will cause you to fall into sin. But I could be wrong. And that's always worth thinking about, right? Because the principle of love-limiting liberty, whilst it might not apply to eating meat with blood in it, my guess is that principle does need to apply into your church and it does need to apply into our life together as God's people on campus. Because within our Christian communities there will be people who have different views on, say, alcohol consumption. Not on getting drunk. No one who actually reads the Bible thinks it's okay to get drunk, right? But Because the Bible is very clear about that. But some people have an issue over the very consumption of alcohol at all. Some people have, some Christians have an issue over whether clubbing is, is okay, where it's not. Can you be holy and clubbing at the same time? Has, some people have an issue over that. 
Some people have an issue over what you should do, what's right to do under God on a Sunday. What I'm suggesting to you is that that New Testament principle of love limits our liberty will have deep application into your church community and into the EU community on campus. We need to engage together and try to work out how that actually needs to operate. Okay, so we've explored a little bit of this don't drink the blood theme. You go, okay, well and good, I think I've understood of all that. You've got to the end of the slide, I'm, clearly that's the end of the talk. Uh, and it would be, except that, that Jesus. Jesus causes us so many beautiful problems. <laughs> because, the one, because Jesus walks onto world history, he takes this Leviticus prohibition, don't drink the blood, don't eat the blood, and he flips it entirely flips it and Jesus says, do drink the blood. So you've got your Bible there. Can you turn with me to John chapter 6? John chapter 6. Let's hear what the Lord Jesus has to say about this. Jesus says, do drink the, do drink the blood. Now, John chapter 6. Jesus, um, we're going to jump in from verse 48 actually, Jesus has been comparing himself to the manna. Uh, manna was the stuff that God provided for his Old Testament people when they were wandering through the wilderness from Mount Sinai or before and after Mount Sinai. Uh, and so, you know, Jesus is thinking about life for the Israelites around Mount Sinai, right? What was going on there? He starts off comparing himself to the manna, the, the, the bread-like substance which God fed the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. Have a look from verse 48 of John 6. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. See Jesus' point? Jesus is saying manna in the Israelites ate in the wilderness. It sustained them day by day, but eventually they died. But if you partake of me, if you, as it were, eat me, you will live forever. Now, he's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about, he's using a metaphor, a way of partaking, receiving, taking into yourself Jesus and all that he offers you. How do you partake of him like that? Well, we know from the New Testament, you do it by faith, by trust. That's how you eat of Jesus, by faith and trust. And in particular, you notice here, Jesus points to his death as the significant focus of that faith. Verse 51 there. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He's talking about his death. And you notice that's where the transition point is. He... He's moved from talking about bread to now which I will give for the life of the world. He's now moving into a sacrificial idea, right? He's starting to move into, I give my life for the life of the world. Now, understand this whole metaphor was a bit tricky for the Jewish audience listening. Have a look in verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They don't get what's going on. And then Jesus responds with a, with a different metaphor. Not manna this time, but he's still thinking about the wilderness. He's now thinking about Leviticus and now he's thinking about the sacrificial system and he's thinking about that prohibition of not eating the blood. See, in Leviticus, when you brought a fellowship offering, a sacrifice, 
you got to eat some of the meat. But you respected the blood. You didn't do anything with the blood. The blood was offered at the altar. Okay? And that's what's in Jesus' mind now as he answers, verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. So unless you drink Jesus' blood, metaphorically, you never will have real life. It's the complete flip of the Leviticus. In Leviticus, the Lord says, if you eat the blood, I will cut you off from my people. Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not be part of God's people. Now that the real atonement has come, it's not the time to hang back. Now is the time to partake, even to the extent of drinking the blood. Now it's understandable, given that sort of metaphor, that the, the reaction of some of Jesus' disciples. Verse 60, you can see they can say, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? That's his disciples saying that. And verse 66, you see that some of his disciples stopped following Jesus that day. Too hard, too wacky. You've told us, we've, we've known for millennia not to eat the blood and now you're saying we must, it's too hard, Jesus. And they stopped following him that day. Now maybe this is bringing to mind for you the one other place that Jesus talks like this and I'll finish with this. The one other place Jesus speaks like this is the very night before he died. It would be tonight, actually. The night before Good Friday. It was the one other time that Jesus spoke like this. I'm just going to read it to you from Matthew chapter 26. This time Jesus uses the same metaphor of eating and drinking for faith, but he acts it out with bread and wine. And this is what he says. While the disciples were eating, Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There's that allusion to the blood being poured out at the altar. Jesus' blood is the real atoning blood of the covenant to which the blood of all those sacrificed animals was pointing. His is the real sacrifice, the real death, the real cleansing of sins, the real atonement in his blood poured out for us. And whereas under that old covenant you respected the blood that God had given for making atonement by not partaking of it, now Jesus says, now that the real atonement is here, you must partake. Drink this, all of you, because this is my blood poured out. And that, uh, that meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, the, the Last Supper, that's uh, what many Christians remember and c- celebrate as part of what they call either the Lord's Supper or Communion or the Eucharist. Uh, and there's a particular set of words in my own um, Christ- uh, the tradition in which I've been, I guess, uh, been brought up in the Christian faith, a particular set of words that I find quite helpful that capture the relationship between what you do in the Lord's Supper or Communion or the Eucharist and what Jesus is talking about, having faith. And it, and it goes like this. The person who's giving out the bread says, take and eat this, that is the bread, 
in remembrance that Christ died for you. Okay, so it sets up the two things. Christ died for you, here's the bread. Right? Then, he sa- then the person says, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you, feed on him, not the bread, feed on him in your heart, that is not in your stomach where you're going to eat the bread, feed on him in your heart by faith, that is not with your mouth and your digestive system, which is how you're going to consume the bread. Feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. See the point? In, in, in a way, the bread is actually immaterial. The br- bread is not the focus, is it? It's feed on Jesus in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. And you can do that anytime. But Christians often try to remember to do that when they celebrate the Eucharist communion, the Lord's Supper. So my prayer for you is very simple. That this Easter, particularly tomorrow, as we remember Good Friday, the day our Lord died for, for our forgiveness, that you might feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Because faith and thanksgiving focused on Jesus' death and resurrection for us, that is the heart of the Easter message. And only by partaking of Jesus in that way, through faith, only that way can we have eternal life. So why don't I lead us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us, particularly in sending your Son, the Lord Jesus, to be the means of our atonement, the means of our cleansing of our conscience, the one who could bring forgiveness for all of our sins. And we pray that you might help us to feed on him by faith, with thanksgiving, that we might enjoy the eternal life, the forgiveness and cleansing that you offer us in him. Accept our praise and our thanks.